It was about four years ago, I think I was standing up here and we announced that we were leaving and I think I was a crying mess. Um, but we are so grateful to be back. Um, we have literally prayed and thought about this moment for several years, just being able to be back with, with you, our sending church. Um, we love you all very much. We think about you all the time and we pray for you guys all the time. Um, when we tell people in Argentina about our sending church, um, it's always just positive. Um, so we love you very much. We're so thankful for your support um, for us over the last just four years um, as we minister in Argentina. Um, so thank you so much for just receiving us and having us. Um, we're grateful to be here. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about myself and our ministry this morning because that's not what the point is. Um, we want to bring the word. Um, but we would love to see you in the luncheon um, because I just would love to see as many of you as we possibly can. Um, so let me... Um, let me just ask you to stand for the reading of God's word out of just respect for his word. Uh, we're going to be in one verse, so you won't be standing long, um, but it is Romans chapter 15, verse uh, 14, and the verse says, I myself am satisfied with you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Father, we want to thank you um, just for your kindness to us. We thank you so much uh, for sending Jesus to this world to live a life that was perfect, one that we could never live, and to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that through the, the, the sacrifice of, of Jesus, we have received his righteousness, a, right, a righteousness that, that we have not merited, that we do not deserve, but that is purely by your grace. We thank you for um, this church. We know that the promise that you have given to your people is that you will build your church and that the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we trust in your promise that no matter what kind of attack this church or any other church that belongs to you might see that you are always building your church. We thank you for the disciples that are being made in this church. And we pray that now you would use this message um, to encourage your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can sit down. <laughs> or maybe I should sit and you all should stand for the rest of the service. No. Um, okay, so as we think about the topic of Romans chapter 15, verse 14, we're talking about the topic of discipleship. I think that is what the theme is for this year. Is that right? Um, and you might wonder why is the missionary that has been on the field for four years and is back finally, why is he talking about discipleship and not missions and not, you know, things that have happened on the field over the last four years? 
And the most simple answer is because at its very core, I believe that discipleship is the most important aspect of missions. You might object and say, well, I thought evangelism was. And well, it's true. Obviously, that's necessary. Um, and that is essential. Uh, but especially in missions and the evangelistic culture that we see, it is far too easy to fall into the trap of quick conversion, easy believism, that just says that if you just believe this fact, you'll have eternal life, or the constant temptation to put too much focus on our numbers rather than on disciple-making. Not that mat numbers don't matter, but we tend to wear them as a badge of honor in missions and in our local churches. People in missions like to say, look how many converts we have, or look how many churches we have planted. And people at churches like to say, well, look at how many people came to our event. And I think the most important question that we need to be asking is, are we making disciples? Think just for a moment about the most important missionary verse that we have, the one that we always use, Matthew 28, verse 19. What does it say? It says, go therefore and make what? Disciples. Those who will follow Christ with their life. I added that part into the verse, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. But I also think about the general call for all believers in the New Testament. It's not just for missionaries to make disciples, but the call is for all believers in the church to make disciples. That is the call. The basic question is, what am I going to talk about today? Because when we talk about discipleship, there are literally a million different paths that we can go down. We could talk about so many different things. And what I want to talk about today is what is our goal or what is our objective in disciple making? Um, what are we looking for? That is, that is the overarching question that I want to answer today. What is our aim in disciple-making? What are we looking for? That's the big picture question. What are, what, what are the characteristics of a disciple that I should see in someone as I disciple someone? And like I said before, the call is for everybody. I mean, there are so many verses that, that I think call all believers to be a part of the disciple-making process in the local church. You, you can think for just a second, you know, Titus chapter two, verses three through five, where it encourages young men or, or older women and older men to disciple younger men and younger women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young men to love their husbands and children. And older men are supposed to teach younger men as well. It, it, it goes on and says, likewise, urge the younger men 
to be self-controlled, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. And in many ways, you could just think of it, I mean, what, what, is it, what, is, what is discipleship? I mean, you come up with a lot of different definitions, but I mean, I think a, a helpful general definition is, is training one to be more like Christ. You know, allowing someone to come alongside of you so that you can help them and train them in the process of becoming more like Christ, to be mature in Christ. I mean, it's the, it's the verse that's been sitting up here for eight years, right? We proclaim him so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So... As we think about this process of discipleship, what are we aiming for? What kind of characteristics do I want to see in the person that, we are, that I'm discipling? And so in order to help us with that, I want you to turn or, or look at Romans chapter 15, verse 14, where he says again, I myself am satisfied about you, brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So before we actually start the heart of the message, I want you to notice how Paul starts this verse, because he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. Or to say it another way, way he, says, he, he says, I am convinced, my brothers and sisters, even I myself am convinced And Paul is saying he is convinced and he is satisfied about something in particular about these believers that are in Rome. And the question is, what is he convinced or confident in? Now, before I give you the answer, I want you to put your finger in Romans chapter 15 and I want you to turn towards Roman to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In this passage, Paul is introducing himself as an apostle, and he lists off his credentials and states why he is writing this book. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And now he states one of the purposes for why he's writing this book to these believers in Rome. It's a church. Imagine one of your pastors or one of your missionaries or somebody writing a book to encourage you in your faith. Paul is now doing this for this church at Rome, and now he's about to state his, one of his purposes for writing. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So you think about why Paul is now writing this book to these believers in Rome, and he states here one of the reasons why is because he wants to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. 
In other words, Paul is writing this book so that the saints in Rome, and by extension, all of us, might have an obedient faith that, that comes from Christ and a faith in him alone. Now, go back to Romans 15. Because now, what we have is Paul is concluding his letter and he's reflecting on the faith that these disciples have. And in this passage, Paul is telling them that I am convinced that your faith consists of something. And these three characteristics, I believe, are what should characterize every disciple in the church. And here's what he says. I am convinced that one, you are full of goodness. Two, you are filled with all knowledge. And three, you are able to instruct one another. And so those are our three points for this morning. Um, so let's, let's get to it. The first point, Paul says, I am convinced that you and your faith is filled with goodness. Now, what does that mean? The first mark of a disciple is that one is filled with goodness. He says here, I am convinced of this. I am convinced that this marks your life. Not only does it mark your life, but it absolutely fills your life. Paul notices that these believers are marked by a certain kind of goodness towards others. It's Philippians chapter 2, right? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, where, where Jesus becomes a model for us in his sacrifice on the cross. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, one commentator gives a definition that I think is helpful of goodness, and he states, he states this about the word goodness. Goodness is a character that is marked with a positive moral quality characterized especially by the interest and welfare of others. That's why I just read Philippians chapter 2. Because we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So this idea of goodness is this idea of serving and doing good towards others, especially out of the outflow of our love for Christ. It's not just being nice to people, but rather it is a posture of love, of service and sacrifice that, dem that demonstrates itself through good works for the welfare of others. It's that same kind of attitude that Christ had in his incarnation when he humbled himself to serve others and looked out not for the interests of himself, but he hum humbled himself to serve others and looked out and paid attention and noticed the needs of others. Most obvious was, of course, their eternal salvation, our eternal salvation and rescue from hell. Now Paul is telling these precious believers in Rome that the goodness is not just something that occasionally marks their life, but it is literally something that fills their life. 
They are filled with goodness towards others, and it is not just random acts of kindness. And this should come as no surprise that a believer's life would be full of goodness. Where do we, where do we also see this word goodness? Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Did you all hear me sipping my water? Um, so, so Paul, now in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, is listing off the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the, the character qualities or the fruit that the, that the Spirit of God produces in a believer. And what does he say in verse 22? He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and what? Goodness. And goodness. So here we see that if a person is truly a Christian, if he has placed his faith in Jesus Christ and repented of his sin, the Holy Spirit is working in him to produce goodness. This goodness in a love for others is an outflow, as we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, of their salvation in Christ. Now look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. What does it say? It says, for grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Same idea here. Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in this passage, Paul has just finished glorying in the goodness of salvation that we have in Christ. And then he says that the result of that salvation is good works or goodness towards others. Um, the other day I was reading with my kids um, 1 John, and we were reading 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, and it just reminded me of this idea of goodness. And it, it, it says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart... Um, Against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And I read this verse and I told them, you know, what if God just sat in heaven watching his creation live in their sin, perishing, destined towards hell, and just said, I love you and I want to help, but did nothing? He has the right to do that, he's completely just. But one of the most amazing things about this verse is that God demonstrates his love through goodness towards his people or towards the fallen world. Christ laying down his life for us and this is what should cause us to do the same, right? Verse 17 and 18 in 1 John, we need to love in what word and not just in, in, in talk in or in our speech but it needs to be something that marks our life. Um, 
Now, let's look briefly at how this idea of, I think, goodness looks in the book of Romans. Because he, he's saying to these believers, your life is marked by goodness. And now, I, I think that one of the questions that we should ask ourselves is, well, how do we do it? And I think Paul actually gives us several examples in the book of, of Romans. Um, for example, um, Romans 15, verse 1 says, we, ha- we who are strong have no ob- obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. In other words, Paul is calling those that are strong in the faith to act in a way that serves other believers and their response, um, responses and in, in problems in their church. We are not called to serve our own desires or please ourselves, but to stand with those who need help and care in our churches. Um, and, and then in, in the book of Romans, he also lists several one another passages that I think help us understand how can we practice goodness towards others. Um, and we see several of these one another passages. And if you're in this church for long enough, you're going to hear about this, especially in the biblical counseling ministry, right? One another passages. And we see several of those in Romans chapter 12 or in, Roman, in the book of Romans in general. For example, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans twelve sixteen. Live in harmony with one another. And do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Or Romans 14, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Um, Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So God calls us to good works. He calls those who are disciples to be filled with goodness. And I have met many in my life who think that just having theological knowledge is kind of the maximum. And that's it. That's all you need. And they spend most of their time maybe just reading, studying, but outside, their lives are not marked by goodness towards other people. Their lives are not marked by a service and a care for other people. And God says that we should be marked by goodness, by the Spirit of God producing that in our life. And that's what we see the Roman believers as well, in the the Roman believers, that they were marked by goodness. Um, Now, the second characteristic of a disciple that we see is not only goodness, but what else do we see in this verse I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are, what, full of goodness and, what, filled with all knowledge. You're filled with all knowledge. So the next mark of discipleship that we see in Romans 15, 14 is to be filled with knowledge. Now, Paul tells the Roman believers, I am convinced of this, that you are filled with it. You are filled with knowledge. Now, what's the most natural question that we might ask ourselves after reading this verse? Well, what kind of knowledge is it? What kind of knowledge are we talking about? Just basic knowledge about what's going on in the world? 
Well, in the context of the book of Romans, we can see that it is clearly related to the knowledge of the gospel and sound theology. He's just spent 15 or 14 chapters talking about the essentials of the gospel and about rich theology and about Christian living. So he's talking about knowledge of the gospel, knowledge of theology, knowledge of who he is, knowledge of Christ. You know, it's interesting because earlier in this book, um, it, it, just flip a few pages to Romans chapter 10. Because in Romans chapter 10, what's interesting is that Paul it actually is seen criticizing his own Jewish people. Um, here it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, starting in verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but what? But not according to knowledge. Zeal was often marked of the Jewish community, their fervent prayers, their desire to keep the law, to be accepted by God and earn his righteousness. And one of the main arguments of this entire book, the entire book of Romans, is that you can't earn your righteousness. It doesn't matter how passionate you are. It doesn't matter how fervent your prayers are. It doesn't matter how much zeal you have. If you don't have a knowledge of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, you are perishing in your sins. The Jews were passionate and zealous for their own good works, but they were misinformed and did not believe the truth about justification by faith alone, for for example. Their knowledge and true theology was lacking. Now place the same kind of warning that Paul gives them and place that in our own contemporary culture. Who might we think of that might have a lot of zeal for God, but they are lacking in their understanding of the true gospel? I think of Mormons. We have several Mormons in in Argentina, and we do too. We have them here spending two years on the mission field, spreading their faith. They have high high morals. I've had several friends that were, were Mormons. They love their families, but they're completely misinformed about true theology and justification that comes by faith alone and Christ alone. We think of, 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 of the, 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 the Catholic, Catholics um, as a religion. We think about their sacraments and, and confession and their fervent good works, and yet they do not have a knowledge of the true gospel. And they deny that salvation is by grace alone. Or we can even think about the people that have oftentimes crept into our own local churches that might profess some sort of faith and they do a lot in our churches and yet inwardly they have not trusted and believed in Christ. And their knowledge and their love for Christ is lacking. I think Augustine has a helpful quote. He says, it is better to limp in the right direction or the right way than to run with all of our might in the wrong way, right? Having a zeal for God, of course, is necessary. And I don't deny that having passion and a fervent love for him is necessary. 
But if that is not accompanied by true understanding of the gospel, it is worthless. I want to give you just a a quick example of our own local context in Argentina. One of the the greatest threats to the true gospel in, in Argentina is the charismatic movement. Now, I grew up and I was raised in the charismatic movement, and, and I have many brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement, but the kind of charismatic movement, for example, that we see in Argentina and all over Latin America is a charismatic movement that teaches us, if you just have enough faith, you will be wealthy. Well, guess what? That is a false gospel. That is a false gospel. If you just have enough zeal for God, he will bless you. Usually they say, almost certainly they say with riches and maybe a big house and health and wealth. And that is not the message of the gospel. And that is one of the greatest threats that we see in Argentina. We see many people that are professing believers, and I have no doubt that there are some in those churches that are Christians, but as a whole, these churches that we constantly see teach this kind of false gospel. It is a self-help, psychologized gospel that promotes health and wealth And so what is our ministry in Argentina? Part of our ministry in Argentina is like Patrick said, we want to go in and we want to just, we want to train up pastors and members in local churches and disciple them in our, in our local church as well. And we want to train them in sound theology. We want to just give them the word, right? We want to show them what the message of the New Testament, what the the message of the Old Testament is. And so that is what we do. We go into these remote places Usually you're on a dirt road. You can ask Josiah over there. You're on a dirt road for about four hours just to get to these villages. And if you get one flat tire, it's scary because you have one spare left and you get a lot of flats on these roads, let me tell you. And you don't want to get too many because what happens? You don't want to get stuck in the middle of those places. Um, Anyways, that's not the point. But the point is, we go into these places, and they're hungry for the word. They want, they want to learn the word because so often they've been confronted with a false gospel, either, either charismatic gospel that preaches health and wealth, or, or maybe a, a kind of earth religion that's mixed with Catholicism. And there's these churches, and we go in, and we want to, just try, we want to try to train them in sound theology. That is our, that is our goal. Um, and, and you actually think about um, you, you actually think about the, the world as a whole um, outside of America. Eighty five percent of of pastors and ministers or, or any kind of leadership in the church lack any sort of formal theological training. Usually, it's, it's zero. Many of these people became pastors because they were the oldest in their village. They were the oldest in their village, or they were the, high, they, they were the highest respected person in their village, and yet they lack any kind of knowledge. And that, you know, I, I don't blame them. Many of them want that, and that's what our goal is, obviously, is to try to go in and try to teach them. 
You know, one of the things that I find interesting in, the, in Paul's letters is that he always has this emphasis on knowledge and life. They're, they're never separated, right? And, and sometimes I think we can separate it in our own minds. You can be really zealous for good works, or you can have a lot of knowledge about theology, but the message of the gospel is what? Is that our knowledge of God produces good works. And, and we always see this message that Paul has. For example, in 1 Timothy 4.16, he's talking to, to Timothy, a young disciple in the faith. And, and Paul tells Timothy, he says, he says, I want you to do something. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to keep a close watch. I want you to look carefully at yourself and your teaching, right? Those, those two things, that knowledge of God's word and that ability to proclaim his word, but also your own personal integrity and your life, the way that you serve and the way that you love others. So Paul is telling Timothy, be careful with how and how you live, the temptations that rage around you, the desires of your sinful flesh, get that under control if you want to be a true disciple, right? Watch your form of living and your life, but also watch out for what you believe. Theology matters. Fill your mind with scripture and the teaching of God's word so we, seek that good, um, so we see that good works are important, but also knowledge. And so when we're discipling others, or even as we think about ourselves as disciples, that should be a, an essential characteristic of our own life. Now, some practical ways to, how do, how do we fill our minds with biblical knowledge? Well, here's some practical ways. The first is just come to church. Be a participant in your local church. Come to church with a heart and mind that is ready to listen well to the word of God. I think that usually our tendency is to blame the preacher if there was a bad sermon right? What did, what did you guys think of the message? What did you guys think of how he did? Now I can say that now because I'm the one preaching, right? But I think one of the greatest challenges as a congregation that for, for all of you is to learn how to be a good listener, right? Learn how to listen well to a sermon. What does that mean? Maybe take notes, or maybe when you're, when, maybe when they, I don't know, you guys send out the passages before? Maybe sometimes, I don't know. Figure, what, figure out what, what the pastor is going to preach on and read that, read that passage as a, as a family together to kind of prepare your mind for what the passage is going to be on Sunday. The point is learn how to be a good listener on Sunday morning to the sermon. Um, other ways that you can do, uh, download apps on your phone that will help you with a Bible reading plan. There are several of them, right? There are so many. Um, make a habit of listening to sermons or good, good biblically-based podcasts on, or scriptures in your free moments. There's a wonderful app that I use. It's called Dwell, and it, and it, it basically is, is, the, is basically the Bible in audio form. It's kind of like Spotify for you, maybe younger people who know what Spotify is, for, for the Bible. 
It has different plans, different stories, and, and the point is to fill your mind with Scripture. You can even choose different voices if you want. Um, it, it's kind of neat, but it, it's, it's, it's fun because they have little, you know, they might have like a, a listening plan to like two-minute listens or something. So in your spare time, when you have three minutes of extra time, listen to a passage of script, Scripture or, or something concerning the Word instead of just, you know, scrolling through Facebook um, or, or something like that. So anyways, the app is called Dwell. I don't work for them, but I think it's a great app. Um, maybe, uh, yeah, may, make a goal of reading, maybe make a goal of one to two theological books this year. Go talk to Patrick or Herb or any of the other pastors and just ask them, what, what are your favorite theological books? I want, to, I want to try to make a goal of reading one this year or two this year. Um, some years ago, it's interesting, we're talking about, you know, filling your mind or your time with um, scripture. Some years ago, Crossway, that, you know, they produce all of, all, most of the Christian books now, came out with an in- infographic that explained how long it would take to read each book of the Bible. And I thought it was kind of informative because they, they just laid it out in a visual form. And they said, if you want to read, for the example, the book of Genesis, it'd take you three hours and 31 minutes. If you want to read the book of Ruth, it takes you 15 minutes. That's it. If you want to read the book of Obadiah, when was the last time you guys read Obadiah? I don't know when the re- last time I read Obadiah was. You know how long it takes you? Four minutes. Four minutes. Or the book of Nahum, seven minutes. Second, Thess- Second Thessalonians, seven minutes. Titus, six minutes. Jude, four minutes. So you can just begin to fill your your empty time wherever it is, in the kitchen, in the bathroom, I don't know, with, with reading scripture, four minutes to read the book of Jude. So the point is, you have more time than you think to read the scripture and fill your mind with the knowledge of God's word. Um, okay, moving on. The last characteristic that we see in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, is the ability to instruct one another. So the final mark of discipleship that we're going to look at this morning is what Paul says here, and that is the ability to instruct one another in the faith. The NIV actually reads that you are competent to instruct one another. Um, So look at the verse again. In the ESV, which I'm using, it says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and you are able to instruct one another. Like I said, the NIV says that you are competent to instruct one another. The NASB says that you are able to admonish one another. And the word there is an interesting word. It's nutheteo. And this word has the idea of correcting or warning against sin or advising others against sinful patterns in their life. So in many ways, this is exactly what we do in the ministry of biblical counseling. One of our ministries in Argentina is biblical counseling. And one of the ministries that I know exists here that is very strong and is very good is the ministry of biblical counseling. And that is what this word has in mind. This this idea of counseling one another towards an avoidance of sin 
or helping somebody else live a life that is righteous. One commentator says, Paul encourages ordinary Christians, um, no doubt especially those who have greater maturity and wisdom, to give one another practical, real-life wisdom and counsel based on the Word of God. Right? So that is what we have in mind here. I think that it has more to do with an interpersonal or private ministry of the word than maybe even say a public proclamation of the word, but it can include that as well. The word is no stranger to us. We see this word nutheteo or admonish or instruct several times. Paul uses it in Colossians 1.28. Is that it? Where is it? There it is. Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Um, It's interesting because here the word warn or warning is the word nutheteo. And I want you to look at something important with me. What is the ultimate goal of this nutheteo ministry? What is the goal? What is the goal of of the counseling ministry that we have at this church or, or, or just personal discipleship when we're personally instructing one another. What is the goal? It, maturity in Christ so that you might be complete in Christ so that you might be like Christ so that you might be made more and conformed into the image of Christ. In many ways we could say that is the ultimate goal of all Christian discipleship growth and maturity in Jesus. And so we can say that the true mark of a disciple is that they are, as a result, able to instruct one another or give some sort of verbal communication of the, the, the word. So when we talk about discipleship, that's one of our goals. We want others to be able to communicate the word with other people as well. It's kind of this multiplication effect. So when you are discipling another person, one of your end results is so that person might in turn or as a result be able to do the same with another person, that they might be able to instruct another person, that they might be able to come alongside another person and give them godly counsel and wisdom from the word. There's another verse, Colossians 3.16, it says something similar. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Um, Let me just wrap this up here. Some of you might be curious, how many of you have ever heard of the, the, the name J. Adams? So several of you, he is kind of the founder of the biblical counseling movement, the modern biblical counseling movement. And if you're ever interested, he wrote a book that is really good called Competent to Counsel. And, and really his whole goal in this book was to tell normal Christians that they were able, that they had the capacity to come alongside other people and counsel them, disciple them, 
And, and he, gets this, this, he gets the title of his book from this phrase in Romans 15, 14. Called, it's called Competent to Counsel, and the idea of the book was, was based on this idea, Romans 15, 14, that you are able or that you are competent to instruct one another. Anyways, that's just a side note. That one was for free. Um, I just think it's interesting. Um, maybe you don't, but anyways. Um, so, so I want to close by reading again Colossians 1, 28, because I think this verse sums it up well. The entire goal, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching um, everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So now, now think about those people right now that you are discipling in your own life. And to some extent, what are you aiming for? What is your goal with those who you are discipling? And if you're not discipling, then that's the goal of this whole series throughout this year. What are your goals with this person? As you are discipling this person, what are you thinking about? What are your aims? What is your direction? You should be thinking about these three things. You should be aiming toward to disciple a person that loves others in good deeds, serves others, lays down his life for other people. Number two, a person that is filled with knowledge. So your goal is, is, is to disciple a person towards a, a proper knowledge of who God is. And number three, I think you should be discipling people that are, as a result, able to instruct other people as well. That they are competent to counsel or come alongside others for the purpose of discipleship. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. We thank you for how in many ways you've discipled us. Um, I think about myself and in my first years of being a Christian, never had anybody to really disciple me. And you, in many ways, discipled me through the power of your word and your Holy Spirit. But Father, I just pray for every single person in this church, and I pray that you would help them to be disciple makers, that they would be eager to come alongside other people, to disciple them and teach them and show them um, the necessity of practicing good works and knowing your gospel and your word and also the importance of being able to instruct and counsel others. So, Father, I thank you for this church. Um, we believe that it is your church and that your word will continue to build this church through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.